Hello and welcome back to Chronicle, the history of Newcastle United. I'm Matt Ketchell, football editor at Chronicle Live, and we are back with part two of episode 19, the Supermac era. This is the second half of our amazing chat with Malcolm McDonald and John Gibson, upstairs in the Gibraltar Rock in Tynemouth, overlooking King Edwards Bay, trying to make ourselves heard above the seagulls squawking. Last week, in part one, Malcolm and John discussed with us Malcolm's arrival at St James's Park in 1971. Tony Green came up too, Hereford in the FA Cup was in there, of course, and the club's run all the way to the 1974 FA Cup final. This week, we discussed the FA Cup hangover, the end of an era as Joe Harvey leaves, the Gordon Lee season, and Malcolm's move to Arsenal. But just before I press play on episode two, I wanted to read out an email we've had from Chronicled contributor Alan Candlish, who was our guest on episode 16, which covered 1952 to 1961. Alan has an amazing Supermag anecdote that has to be heard. I'm going to read it out now before we resume the episode. So, Alan writes... There was one fabulous McDonald goal that anyone that was there will never forget. It was a strike against Leicester City in August 1975. Irvin Natras cleared the ball upfield and Mack ran onto it. Everyone thought he was going to carry it forward for a few yards before having a shot at goal. Instead, he just let fly from an unbelievable distance. The ball screamed into the net. Paul makes particular reference to this goal in his Shirt of Legends book, in which Super Mac referred to the goal by saying, Throughout my entire career, I only hit one perfect shot and that was it. Alan continues, it was particularly important for me because that goal literally saved my dad's life. He was standing on the terraces when the goal was scored and the crowd erupted. In the ensuing celebrations, he lost his footing on the steps and fell to the ground and was badly trampled by the fans around him. He was eventually helped to his feet, but he was badly hurt. He thought that he had broken a rib or two. He was forced to leave the ground and go home. He was never usually off work, but he still felt very ill on the Monday morning. As he was a manual worker, a joiner, he was unable to go to work and visited the doctor for a checkup. The doctor decided that he needed an x-ray and arranged for an urgent visit to the hospital. There, they decided to give him a full checkup and x-rays disclosed a shadow on his lung, cancer. Within days, he was admitted to the hospital for surgery and they removed the malignant tumour. Seemingly, miraculously, he survived. He did not even know that he was ill before the match. So, Supermax's goal saved my dad's life. Just a little true story. So amazing to read that. Thanks, Alan, for sharing. Listener, enjoy the episode. This is the Supermac Era, part two, with Malcolm McDonald himself, John Gibson, Paul Joanneu, and me, Matt Ketchell. Paul, was there a Wembley hangover into that season, do you think? Well, I suppose there might have been, yeah. It was a sort of ordinary year for such excitement. Joe Harvey tried to boost the side by introducing two new uh, midfielders. Terry McDermott had headed out for Liverpool after after, uh, making a a, a huge impression over a couple of seasons. Tommy Craig and Jeff Nulty came in. Jeff Nulty had actually played for Burnley in that semi-final. Um, and also to arrive was Glenn Keeley as a centre-half and a new goalkeeper in Mick Mahoney. But an exit to Lowly Walsall was in the in store in the FA Cup and that was really the beginning of the end for United's old war host Joe Harvey uh, who was pushed upstairs at the end of the season. Um, and then Newcastle's board looked to a new and dynamic new man to lead the club. And then they didn't get one. Well, <laughs> <laughs> In the summer of 76, a virtual unknown from the lower divisions arrived. Gordon Who was the famous headline in the Evening Chronicle. And, uh, oh, I wonder who, I wonder who had anything to do with that. 
Gibble, before we talk about Gordon Lee, the, the end of the Joe Harvey era, you, yeah. you broke the story. Tell, tell us about that. Yeah, I, I mean, it was a great sadness for me because if ever there's been a wonderful, wonderful servant to our club, Joe Harvey must stand above all others. He must rank, if football's all about results, and we know it is, because that's how we win championships and cups, then he is the most successful manager we've ever had, in as much as Kevin Keegan and Bobby Robson, who were to come and were sensational, actually didn't win anything. This guy won the European Fairs Cup, he, he won the Anglo-Italian, he won two Texacos, he got to the FA Cup final. He kept us in the first... He, brought us into the first division and there was no relegations during the nine years he was here. He was terrific and he'd been such a player for us as well before that. And to see him go and under the circumstances that he was going to go and under the sadness you saw on the man's face when he knew he was going, you've got to remember that this was the time when we also got rid of Frank Clark. We got rid of Frank Clark as a yeah. player, um, who just was supposed to be finished and just went on Nottingham Forest and won the First Division yeah, yeah. Championship and won the European Cup. He was dead finished. Because he, he was halfway through a negotiation of a new contract. Correct. With Joe. With, with, with Joe. Yeah. And um, Frank, he, he said, because we always used to go to the Milkmaid for some lunch, yeah, the two yeah, of us, yeah, yeah. sometimes with John Tudor. And Frank said, he said, I'm, I've been halfway through negotiating a contract with um, with Joe, new contract. He said, and um, he's just pulled me aside today and he said that the board have instructed Joe to stop negotiation, um, to give Frank a free transfer, and the reason being that the board considered him finished. He was that finished that he joined Nottingham Forest, won the second division championship, the first division championship, the, uh, the, the European Cup, oh. and the European Cup again, all in successive years. Phenomenal. Absolutely phenomenal. It, it was a complete change in Newcastle's yeah, fortunes between Harvey going yeah. and... Yeah, three Gordon, days later, Joe, Joe was booted, wasn't he? Yeah, but yeah. He had, uh, to come to that headline, that, that you read. Joe had, had given me permission because I, I was, um, I got to the, the stage of my career at 25, I didn't want layoffs through the summer. They were no good for me. I wanted to keep ticking over. I wanted to keep playing that uh, um, I, I had matured to a point where I just, I had to keep going all the while. And so it had been, um, I, I got it arranged for me to go out to South Africa and play for a side in uh, called uh, Lusitano, yeah, Lusitano, um, that was run by by the local uh, Portuguese, uh, and they were lovely people. They were, they of course were what they were wine exporters exporting to their families who were importing over in Portugal, uh, and, and what have you. So I went over there uh, and, and was and was playing and training all the way through the summer. And, uh, and we used to train in the evenings, um, two or three times a week. And, and the phone rang in my room. And I, so I picked it up and I, and I said, said hello. And, uh, and a very familiar voice 
um, said to me, hello Mel, he said, um, he said, I've just phoned to let you know they've appointed the new man. I said, oh yeah. I said, um, go on, John. I said, uh, tell me. He said, uh, no, he said, I'm not going to tell you. He said, I'll, I'll, I'll give you three guesses. So I said, um, Brian Clough. He said, no, no, it's not Cluffy. I said, it's got to be Bobby Robson then. He said, no, it's not Bobby Robson either. And I thought, uh, I said, oh, oh, John, please don't tell me it's Jackie Charlton. I said, I don't think I could bear that. <laughs> he said, no, 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 it's not uh, Jackie Charlton either. He said, um, he said it's uh, Gordon Lee. And I said, Gordon who? And that was the, that was the headline. <laughs> but the, but uh, did you ever see the size of the thick black capital letters? Yeah, on the on the on paper, the, on Gordon Ho question mark. Wow. Yeah, I knew how to look after my mates. Don't worry about that. Says Supermac <laughs> from Johannesburg. So, Paul, the the Gordon Lee era. How did it begin? Yeah, well, the first season, um, as it turned out, his only full season as well, uh, was to be relatively successful um, with another Wembley Cup run. Indeed, we had two exciting runs as United also reached the FA Cup quarterfinal. Over the autumn and winter and into early spring, uh, your fans had 16 terrific cup matches, which captivated all of the, the, the crowd. And you know, were very nearly got to the semi-final in the FA Cup uh, and we got to the final uh, of the Football League Cup. Um, the manager's formation and tactics were different, of course. Malcolm McDonald had a new partner up front, ex-Manchester United forward Alan Gowling, who came back to the top level from Huddersfield Town and actually was a great success. He scored 31 goals to add to Supermax quarter of 24. Mm. How did you find that partnership with Gowling and Malcolm? Was it different, productive? It, it was different, yes. Uh, he was an entirely different type of player to, to John. John was, John was very generous in the way that he played. He wanted to, to help everybody that, who was around him to, to play better, to score goals and what have you. Um, and and he would he would really give of himself to help others improve and be better. Uh, plus the fact he, he would get his own share of goals as well. You know when you think that I think it, it, that it sort of averaged out each season we was we were scoring sort of like like 40, 45 goals between us. Well, well that meant that we weren't getting relegated. You know, with that number of goals, yeah, and of then you, then you, so you look to your midfield to lift you up the table, and then you and your back four to to get you right up up there. So Alan Gowling, um, he yes, he was a completely um, different um, type of player, um, but he was okay. He was a he was a nice enough lad. That the problem with it all was Gordon Lee. When I um, when I returned from South Africa before the season had started, I thought before pre-season starts, I'll go in to the to the club and I'll um, and I'll just go and introduce myself to Gordon Lee and, and what have you. So in I drove and and I'd I'd been reading, um, catching up on everything and reading the. the the Chronicle and the Journal, and and so I knew that his coach, um, I knew his picture, 
by the photographs that were in the paper and, and his name and what have you. Um, and and so I've parked, gone up the steps, and the and the uh, the doors opened, and out came the coach. And I went up to us and I said, "Hello, Dennis." I thought his name was Dennis Richards. <laughs> so, so Good start. I, I, yeah. So, <laughs> whoops. Um, so I've walked through and I and I've knocked on the off uh, on the office door of the manager, and there was a come in and I've walked in and I've said hello. Uh, I'm Malcolm McDonald. I said uh, I've come to welcome you to the club. He says never mind that. He said tell me about Terry Hibbert. I hear he's a troublemaker. Uh, and I said, all you need to know is he is an absolutely fabulous, brilliant player who has the best left foot in the game of football. I said, from there, just stick him wide left, midfield, and he'll never go wrong for you. Um, and, and I walked out the office, so I thought, well, he ain't going to get on him and me. And sure enough, that's how it used to to, um, to be. Uh, he came into the dressing room, and he's in. He, well, this was during pre-season training, and he said, and he came and stood right in front of me, and he said, "I have just signed the man who is going to score more goals than you." And I said, "Gordon, I said you're a liar." I said, "Because that man doesn't exist." <laughs> well, and, and he says he says oh yes he would score more goals than you I said who is it he said Alan Gallin I went what I said yeah right um, and so Alan Gallin played up front and Gordon Lee started to play me in midfield he, his instructions were that I had to drop right off um, and and so it was giving an advantage to a degree, but it, it didn't matter. I was still going to get my my goals. Um, but uh, I, I must tell you this one: it, it, it because he was forever dropping all sorts of faux pas. He really didn't think about it, Gordon Lee. He really didn't. Um, and I could tell one or two things off air about him, which um, had come my way, and I. It, uh, and I, I just couldn't take, I couldn't take the idiot seriously. I really couldn't. Um, uh, and anyway, so one time he, we were getting changed after training at St James Park, and the way it was organised was that that the first team squad, and we were never a big squad. There was there was maybe fourteen or fifteen. We, we we got changed in the home dressing room, and in the away dressing room was all the other players, all the different levels, and and he and, and he's come into to our dressing room, and he stood in the middle and he's gone. Is Aidan McCaffrey Irish? And we've all looked around. Aidan McCaffrey was 18 years of age, playing centre half in the reserves. Um, getting changed in the other dressing room. You know, why didn't he go in there and ask? And so we've all looked around and we've gone, no, 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 he's, he's, not, he's not Irish, no, he's a Geordie, born and bred. Why do you want to know if he's Irish? He said, I want to nominate him for the Irish international team. 
I said, he owns his own boots and that'll get anybody in the Irish team. <laughs> and so Gordon Lee says, uh, are his parents Irish? And we've all looked around and we've gone, no, no, they're, they're not Irish either, no, no. Geordie's born and bred. Gordon Lee says, how dare he have a name like Aidan McCaffrey and not be Irish? I said, oh, dummy, so stupid, Gordon. I said, my name's Malcolm Ian MacDonald. You can't get a more Scottish name than that. I said, and, and I play for England. He said, you should not play for England with a name like yours. Tommy Custy sat over the way. He said, uh, in a very quiet voice, he said, uh, excuse me, boss, but uh, how many times have you played for China? <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant one-liner. Best ever one-liner in a dressing room. And it boom, just completely shut him up. There's no comeback from that, is there? No, no. He was good with that, wasn't he? Oh, yes. oh and those one-liners. Brilliant. Now, in the 60 years Newcastle have played in the League Cup, the record has been awful. But apart from 75-76, Paul, that almost changed, didn't it? It did. Um, it was... That season, United went all the way at the final, uh, and really the only season that Newcastle have had a decent run, um, or, or run to the final, certainly. In the early rounds, they took care of Southport, Bristol Rovers, QBR and Notts County, then faced Tottenham in a tough semi-final over two legs. Uh, Spurs won 1-0 at White Hart Lane, uh, but United romped home at a very charged St James's Park under the lights uh, by 3-1. And that took us to face Manchester City in, a, in what was a glamour final, really, at Wembley. But as is Newcastle's way, of course, they were rocked by uh, something different this time. It was an influenza bug which hit the club the week before. And this on top of losing experienced players like David Craig and Jeff Nulty, uh, who was now captain, uh, to bad injuries. Luck wasn't on the side and City won 2-1, ironically with uh, what was amazing overhead kick by Heaton, born uh, Dennis Stewart. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, little rascal. Yeah, the interesting thing over that, two things. First of all, I thought we actually played better in that final. Oh, yes. Than we yeah. played in 74, Without. or we went on to play in 98 or 99. Yeah. That was the final where we looked. When we equalised, having been worn down to Peter Barnes and Gowling equalised, I, I actually thought we were going to go on and win. Mm. Um, and we didn't because of Dennis's overhead kick, bicycle kick, which was quite phenomenal. The ball was coming behind him and he kicked it over his head. And I always remember at the end of the game, you can imagine the disappointment from my point of view. As a little kid, I'd sat at Mandy Grace's and watched Newcastle win the cup three times in five years in front of a black and white telly the size of a postage stamp. As a kid, now three times, five, 51, 52, 55, I thought, this is tremendous. I'm going to have a great life, me. It's, it's going to always be like this every so many years. Ago. We've never won a solitary single domestic trophy since we've won the European one, but not that. But I went down, in those days you could get into Wembley and go down to the dressing rooms and everything, unlike yeah, yeah. today where you have it. You know, you have an area for the press. Uh, and I went down to go in to the Newcastle dressing room and just outside the dressing room, this door opens and it's Dennis Stewart without his shirt on, just his shorts, 
holding the cup, sweat all over him, and I said, you little bugger. Because I knew Dennis well, being mm. a, being a, a yeah, Newcastle lad, and he'd scored, he, I played in the Sunderland side, that won the FA Cup just before that, when I was at that final, and I said, you little bugger. He says, Gibbo, that's what happens when you turn me down. And Newcastle had turned him down because he was supposedly too small, and they'd said, no, well, you know, if you're too small, you don't go and get Tony Green, you don't go and get Len White, you don't get a lot of people, you perhaps even don't get Messi if you're, if you're too small. But, he was, but I always remember him saying that to me and thinking, oh, because he was a quality player, there's no question about that. I thought Dennis, despite being a Mackham, uh, a Mackham footballer, he was a Geordie boy, uh, but a good player, uh, a good player. And But we did OK in that final, but... Um, the, the next season, we did great. We, we were flying in the league, but things had changed. You know, you get... And why I will never forgive Gordon Lee as a Newcastle United fan is because if you make big decisions in the club, and he did, he sold the best creator... Terry Hibbett. Terry Hibbett. And the best striker... And the way in which he Martha did it McDonald's. was absolutely... Horrendous. Oh, it was. Right. It really was horrendous. If you get rid of your two top performers, you stay and see the thing out. And you stay towards... Because you've rid the team of their top players. You don't then go yourself and leave the club without Terry Hibbert, without Malcolm McDonald and without a manager. And he did that. He left and went to Everton before the season finished. And I thought that was forgivable. Kevin Keegan, much later, was never forgiven by David Ginola for walking out of Newcastle after telling Ginola, don't go to Barcelona, stay with us, we'll do great things. And then he leaves. You don't do that sort of thing. And for Gordon Lee to walk out of Newcastle and go to Everton, having deprived the fans of Hibbert and MacDonald, I found unforgivable. And that was the start of us going right down the plug mine because Dickie Dennis was manipulated by player power for the rest of the season. We finished fifth. That so was, was the board. Oh, totally. Yeah, but because the board lacked the guts to do anything about it. Yeah. They, they let the players yeah. manipulate the situation. And we got stuck with Dickie Dennis, who, bless him, uh, I had as much idea as a, a goldfish trying to get a, a mouth of fresh air. I mean, but he was a school teacher, wasn't he? Yeah, he like just, he just had it. And we lost 10 games on the trot. We went out of the League Cup. Malcolm had gone by it. We went out the League Cup to somebody like Millwall, I think. We lost 10 games on the trot. We went out of Europe. And he got the sack, and we had McGarry, and it was all downhill. And thank you very much. I don't want to talk about that. <laughs> well, you're straying into our next episode, actually, exactly. Gibbo. So let's. This is the Supermac episode. But Paul, the summer of '76, that was an end of an era, really, wasn't it? Well, it was. As as Malcolm has said, the relationship with Gordon Lee wasn't good, and it all came to a head. Um, and Supermac was away down to London to to play for Arsenal. And uh, it was never really the same after that for many a year. If, if I can go back to, to uh, some way through the season, an incident took place where at the end of it, I, I just promised myself that this was going to be my last season at Newcastle. I was not going to tolerate what I had witnessed. 
And it was how Gordon Lee got Terry Hibbett out of the club. It was the most horrendous and disgraceful act in a profession that I've ever witnessed or even heard of. Um, we were playing down at Derby County and after five minutes, Mickey Burns got sent off for a tackle. He couldn't tackle a dinner. Never mind, get sent off for a tackle on a football pitch. Uh, and the referee had sent him off. And so we're down at 10 men playing at the baseball ground. And Hibby, rather than switch everything around, Hibby just said, I'm shifting just inside a bit, I'll cover the two positions. And he did. And he was absolutely brilliant that night. Um, he played the game of two men and played it brilliantly, both of them, both games. And I think they finished up winning 3-2, if memory serves. But they went a goal up, we equalised. They went a goal up, we equalised. And then in the last two or three, four minutes, um, they got the winner. And on the final whistle... Hibby just sank to his knees. He was absolutely exhausted. Um, and so I went over to him uh, and, and I sort of got my arm around and under, under his armpit and hoisted him up and I said, come on, wait man, I said, let's get you off. Um, he said, I'm absolutely jiggered. He said, I, I can't run another step. Um, I said, come on, I'll help you off. And uh, and we, we got into the dressing room. All the players had, had stripped and were in the bath by then. And so Hibby, he was struggling to get his boots off. He was that shattered. Um, uh, and it was the most tired I'd ever seen a player after a game. Um, and, and, and so got him um, undressed and I undressed myself. And, and we went through and, and we went into the plunge bath and other players were already bathed. and and we're leaving. And so after a couple of minutes, it just finished, Hibby and I, in, in, the, in the plunge bath. Um, and, and Hibby had just sat there, and he, and he was just completely gone. He, 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 was like, he was like that. And so finally I said, come on, Hibby. I said, uh, I said, we can't be all night in here. So there was, and there was a ladder at the side to go up and so I've, I've got him onto the first rung and I've literally pushed his ass to, to help him get up there. Uh, he, he, he got out then of the bath and, um, and we, we went through to the dressing room with towels around us and what had happened in our absence was that two big kit hampers. One takes all the boots and the other one takes all the, the gear, socks, shorts, jocks and uh, shirts and so one is on top of the other and on top of that was a brown paper parcel and it was obvious there was a pair of boots in, in the brown paper parcel uh, and and there were the two physios there was Richard Dennis and just me and Hibby everybody else had gone they were gone to the players bar and Hibby even though he was completely knackered um, he, he, he sort of never missed a a trick, nothing escaped his attention. And he spotted that brown paper package on the top of the two skips. 
And he, so he says, uh, so who's not travelling back then? Because it was the usual thing that if somebody was going off for internationals, that's how they left your boots out. Or if, 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 if something else was going on. Then. And as Hibby had been saying it, Gordon Lee came in through the door and heard what he said. And the two physios were trying to get out the way. Richard Dinnis was trying to get out the way as well. And Gordon Lee came marching across, picked up this package, went to Hibby, lifted his arm, shoved this package under his arm and says, you're not, you're not coming back with us. He says, Freddie Goodwin, manager of Birmingham's out there. He said, and if I were you, he said, I'd sign for him because I don't want you in our club anymore. And I thought, what on earth have I just witnessed? Never seen anything like it, ever. And Hibby just, he came and sat down and he was now just completely and utterly deflated in every possible way. And Gordon Lee marched out the door. And Hibby just said, I don't believe what's happened. I said, Hibby, I said, I don't believe it either. I said, I've never witnessed anything like that in my life. I said, anyway, I, I said, now, I said, I know you too well. I said, don't you dare go and do anything rash. Go and talk to Freddie Goodwin by all means. I said, but, I said, you're going home with us tonight and you've got to go and have a chat with your missus. You've got kids in school and, and, and a house to sell. I said, this takes a bit of a time. I said, and you've got to talk to your missus before you come, jump into any decisions. He says, yeah, 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 you're right. He said, thanks. So we both got dressed and off Hibby went to, to talk with, um, uh, with the Birmingham manager. And I went into the players bar and no sooner had I got in there than Gordon Lee and Richard Dinnis came in. They said, right, right, come on, Newcastle party. Got a long trip home, um, out onto the bus, onto the bus. And so we were suddenly being rushed um, out of the, the, the players room. And, and so out we went and, and we were getting onto the bus. And Gordon Lee and Richard Dinnis then came on and I, well, we suddenly realised that he was going to get the driver to drive off without Hibby. And so, uh, as Gordon Lee was giving his instructions to the driver, come on then, let, let's go, let's go, we've got a long drive. We went, oi, whoa, whoa, whoa. Hibby's out there still and uh, we wait for him. He's not going to be that long. Um, it's just a preliminary talk. The rest of it will come later. I said, but for now, he's got family to get back to. He said, no, he said, uh, he said, I've told him he's got a sign for Freddie Goodwin. He said, um, he said, so leave the little behind. Driver, if you value your job, drive off. So Bob Green, the driver, bless him, he was a lovely fella. He sort of did a bit of kangaroo juice going up the road and, uh, and uh, made it a very, very slow exit from the baseball ground. And we were about 40 yards up the road and, and all of a sudden somebody at the back shouted, whoa, hold on, Ibby's just come out, he's looking for the bus. And sure enough, there he was looking for the bus and he saw it and he started running towards us and Gordon Lee said, if you value your job, driver, drive on, we're leaving the little behind. And poor old Hibby, he, he got marooned 
and stranded there at, 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 in Derby. So he had no alternative but to, to go to Derby Station, get a train to Chesterfield, from Chesterfield to Sheffield, from Sheffield another train um, across to York, and then he had to wait for the first for the for the paper train coming up from London at York, and he got home at a, at uh, at about uh, half past seven in the morning. Absolutely shocking. That was the way that Gordon Lee and I and I had decided even in the in the dressing room earlier that evening that there was no way I could play. Uh, for that man ever again. So I, from there on, I just played for myself. It was still good for the team because I, I, um, I knew what I needed to do. And I just made it very clear to Gordon Lee what a prat I thought he was. And that's a really disgraceful way to, to Absolutely, him. absolutely. I've ne I, I, it was one of the most wicked things I've ever witnessed. Um, and and I had all sorts of stuff on on. on on him and um, and I, I and I thought no I've just got to keep my mouth shut um, and if I need to use it I'll use it but uh, at, at that particular time I wasn't uh, and and so I, I I treated him with complete and utter contempt from that day onwards all the way through complete and utter contempt and your next move Malcolm was famously back down south to Arsenal and I believe the transfer fee was a rather unique figure, £333,333.33. Pence. Can you explain what that was all about, please? Yeah, the figure is actually wrong. Okay. So if, if, if you'd like me to, I'll tell you for why. Okay. Um, I could blame Paul for that. Paul gave me that figure. No, 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 and, and that's the figure that's always been... But, that, but something just beyond that happened. N Newcastle were offered originally 275,000 and they accepted it. Uh, and they accepted it and gave Terry Neal permission to talk with me and me to talk with him. And Terry Neal had flown up, it was a, it was a Friday afternoon, he had flown up in a little private plane and so, having agreed 275,000, we flew immediately, Terry Neal and I, in this private plane, down to Luton, and from there, went to the hotel where the England side used to stay. So I knew the hotel well, West, uh, West Park Lodge. And so Terry Neal, he said, right, he said, look, you're here now. He said, uh, we'll, we'll get everything sorted on Monday. You know, we'll, we'll sit down and, and do the contract and what have you. I said, okay, I'll wait to hear from you. So, nothing over the weekend, nothing on the Monday, nothing on the Tuesday, nothing on the Wednesday. At the beginning of the week, I used to write a column with the Sun. Well, it was ghosted uh, by Bob Cass. And, and so Bob had come down and was staying in the hotel. Thank heavens, at least I had some company. And we, used to, we were playing pool for most of the day. So nothing on Wednesday, still nothing on the Thursday. And by now, I'm getting irate. In fact, on the Wednesday night, I had had dinner 
with Keith Birkinshaw, who was then manager of Spurs, and they wanted to sign me. And I, so I thought, I've got to go and have dinner with Berkey just to ask why he's criticised me for four bloody years at Newcastle. Now he, now he wants to sign me. What is it all about? Anyway, on the Friday afternoon, Terry Neal turns up at the hotel, and I'm now like fuming, there's steam coming out of my ears. And, and I said, what the hell's going on? I said, I've been stuck here for a bloody week now with not a word. Uh, and he said, look, he said, I'm really, really sorry. He said, oh, we've been having some dreadful problems. He said, I'm getting the car. He said, I'm gonna drive you down to the chairman. He's asked me not to say anything about what's happened. He wants to tell you himself. So we drove down to, um, to the chairman's um, house uh, in, in a place called Hartney Wintney, um, which is on the border of the um, Surrey and Hampshire borders, uh, uh, counties. Um, and, and, and we've arrived, and it's, it, it was quite some house, and we've gone up the steps, and then we've gone, um, uh, and his wife, uh, was the chairman's wife was there and she let us in and she said um, he's out in the garden do follow me and we walked through the house and got and got to big French doors that were open and we've gone out and there was like this this sort of pavilion aspect to um, in the way that it was built like like the the viewing part of a, of a cricket pavilion you know where you look out and we've looked and there's some steps down and his lawn is bigger than Lord's. It was absolutely massive and he, about 200 yards, in the, is right in the middle, sitting at a, 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 um, a, tab a, table, a coffee table and chairs. So Terry Neal and I, we've gone down the steps onto the grass we were like two opening batsmen going out <laughs> and, and, we, and we've walked these 200 yards and Dennis Hillwood has stood up and he sh shook my hand he said I'm he said I'm so pleased that uh, you've come along he said and I really do want to apologize for all the hold-ups that there have been he said we were not in a position to be able to speak with you so we couldn't warn you he said, and obviously from what um, Terry Neal has told me, that uh, Newcastle didn't make any contact with you. I said, no, they didn't. He said, well, they could, have, they could have and should have kept you informed. But he said, never mind. He said, look, let me explain to you what has happened. He said, as you're aware, you came down with Terry Neal on, uh, last Friday with a fee already agreed at £275,000 and we expected just to complete the deal with you. He said, but on the Monday, they reneged upon it and they went back on their word. He said, so, um, so we had a good think about it and we upped our offer to 300,000. He said, it was accepted and we were then uh, making moves to then come and speak with you. He said, and then we got a phone call to say that they had changed their minds and rejected it. He said, so this is where we stand. He said, um, twice they've agreed to a fee 
and twice they reneged. He said, I would like to ask you a question. I said, really, what's that? He said, if you don't sign for us, what will you do? I said, I will more than likely go abroad. I said um, that, that Belgium was a, was a very good option back then in, in that part of the 70s. Um, and uh, I said, I, I, could, I could well find my way going out there. Okay, he said, um, right, thank you for being honest with me. And he waved. And a, and a butler in full gear has come out of the house with a Bakelite telephone on a 250-yard cable <laughs> and has put this Bakelite telephone, which is straight out of the 1930s, on the coffee table in the middle of this gigantic lawn. And so Sir Dennis Hillwood has picked the phone up and he's dialed the number now from memory and he's dialing Lord Westwood's house. And the conversation went, Ah, good afternoon, my lord. Sir Dennis Hillwood here. Uh, now, my lord, first we offer you 275,000. You accepted that. And then you reneged. And so we came back to you with a further offer of 300,000 pounds. You accepted that. And for the second time, you reneged. Now, my lord, I am going to make you one final, last offer. I am offering you exactly one third of a million pounds. Do we have a deal? We do. And you are not going to renege? You're not. Thank you, my lord. Have a good weekend put the phone down he said right now we can talk terms he said but first and he's waved again and the butler has come out with a tray and it has got three huge glasses full of ice and lemon and gin and tonic they were the biggest gin and tonics I've ever seen in my life and so we each had one of those and Sir Dennis Hillwood, he said, right, now you two gentlemen, he said, you can get back home. He said, have a pleasant evening and uh, thrash it all out tomorrow. He said, the deal is done. So, on the Monday, Arsenal were going off on a pre-season tour, stopping at, at Switzerland and then Yugoslavia for two matches. Um, and so, I've thrashed out terms the following morning with Terry Neal and we and so everything's sorted on that and then had to go and sort of go and get enough stuff um, because I'd only gone down with sort of you know enough for a couple of nights and now I've already been there a week and now I've got to go two weeks abroad so um, so I've gone out done some shopping on the um, on the Monday off we went and we and we played um, Zurich Grasshoppers, I think two or three days later, uh, and and I played against Gunter Netzer. It was he he was playing centre half. He had the biggest feet I've ever seen on a football pitch. They must have been fourteens. 
I've never seen feet like it in my life. Anyway, uh, but what a what a player. Um, came back from the trip, Switzerland and Yugoslavia, and um, and there was a message in the dressing room for me to go and see Ken Fryer upstairs, who was the secretary at the time. And so I've gone up there, and um, and I. Uh, and I knocked on his door and he says, come in. And then Ken, he always told a sort of joke or something like that just to get a conversation started. And so he's told me a joke. Uh, and, and then he said, um, he said, right, he said, look, he said, I've got something to show you. And he's opened a drawer and he's taken out a cancelled cheque. And it was for £333,333.34. And I said, ah, oh, I thought it was exactly a third. He said, ah, he said, I wrote it out with 33 pence on the end and put it there for the chairman to sign. He said, and the chairman said, uh, look, you know who we're dealing with. Newcastle United, they are, they are the most difficult, tightest holes in the business. He said, so, he said, they are going to quibble because exactly a third of a million pounds is 33 and a third of a penny. He said, they will quibble over that third of a penny, make it out for 34p, he said. Oh, God. <laughs> so you weren't such a, a good deal after all, you cost a penny more. I did, <laughs> I did. <laughs> I did, and... Um, yeah, said, end of an era. That's it. End of the era, end of this episode, the Supermac era that we're covering in, in Chronicled is, is over. Um, it's been amazing to, to hear these stories. We've got one reader question actually for you, Malcolm. Oh, yes. You would, from uh, Mr. Robinson. Um, he's asked, will you ask Malcolm, given football being much less contact today, would your game be hindered by not being able to use physicality as much? Or would your finishing flourish without defenders jumping on your back? <laughs> trying to kick you all day long. Well, yeah, my game would flourish in the in the modern game, I think, because the, the, there is there's less there's less dirty contact that that there used to be. You know, people literally were kicking you up in the air. Um, that's pretty much stopped. That the, there's a lot of holding going on now, but that wouldn't have bothered me in the slightest because because I I was powerful. What you have to remember is that I, I was a very misleading player in in terms of shape and size to centre halves. I looked eleven stone eight, but I actually weighed thirteen and a half stone, and that extra two stone when it hit, you know, physically hit a centre half that um, they went flying, um, and so and and. Um, do you remember Pop Robson's father-in-law, uh, Lenny Heppel? Yeah. At all? Yeah. Yeah. They, yeah. Men, yeah. Remember Lenny? Yeah. Well, Lenny, he he was um, he was the, he and his wife were were the um, champions of ballroom, ballroom dancing, uh, yeah. uh, you know, and so um, he was a master of movement, um, and Malcolm Allison loved the fella, absolutely loved him had him um, go to all of his clubs and he would work on balance with um, with Malcolm's players particularly those who who were a bit top heavy um, and I and, and I remember him coming to Arsenal we had Willie Young we signed him from Aberdeen big ginger haired fella 
but his center of gravity was about there seriously and and so Lenny Heppel had to work and, and, and sort of balance him up and bring his center of gravity down I once said to Lenny Heppel I said um, I said could you help me out he says no he said I can't do anything for you I said oh why is that he said because your center of gravity he said is where your dick is he said and I can't get it any lower <laughs> Well, I could say something there, but I refuse to say it. I'm not going to be torn. <laughs> but, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, um, oh, dear. Uh, I think Bob Moncur mentioned Lenny in the last episode. And Bob was speaking, yeah, about the pop, and he was actually speaking about you, Malcolm, and obviously faced you every day in training, and he said he always knew you were going to go onto your left foot, and there was nothing he could do about it. You just, you just went there, and defenders knew but they couldn't stop you. Yeah, yeah. That's, a, yeah. that's the way it is with all good players. You know what Ronaldo's going to do, but you try to stop him doing it. Try and stop him, yeah. Yeah, yeah it, there's, because a defender will always maintain that little fear he might just go the other way. So they, they can never 100% be one side or, an, or another. Um, and, and so you, you can always use that. But if you go... But if you take it wide, I was quick enough to sort of go the long way round and still and still get there. Anyway, I, to be honest, it's been great to talk about a real striker today, Malcolm. Thank uh, you. A real honour. I appreciate both, it. Both of you, Gibbo, there literally couldn't have been a better pair to discuss this era. Appreciate that. Um, and to listen and sit in the, the same room has been really special. And I speak for everyone at the Chronicle when I say thank you very much for joining us thanks for my pleasure you're still right for the chronicle so it's great to have your thoughts we we really love those articles we put online so everyone should should go and check that out thanks everyone for listening if you have any nufc history stories observations facts or stats memorabilia you name it you can email us those the eibw podcast at reachplc.com or tweet me at ketchell on twitter please subscribe to the everything is black and white podcast by whichever podcast platform you use and listen to gibbo's corner that he does with our colleague andrew musgrove regularly follow chronicle lives newcastle united channels on social media we're at chronicle nufc on twitter facebook and instagram and if you're enjoying what we're doing with our history series, you can give us a review on iTunes. That'll be fantastic. Last one from me. Stay up to date with everything black and white by subscribing to our daily Newcastle United newsletters. These are free and a link to sign up for them is on our show notes. If you hit that, scroll down to Sport, Newcastle United updates, tick the box. You'll be signed up to receive all the best NUFC content from Chronicle Live, including the fantastic columns of John Gibson and Malcolm McDonald, who, as I said, are still writing regularly for us. So thanks very much for listening to Chronicle, the history of Newcastle United. With me, Matt Ketchell. Paul Joanne, and our very special guests, John Gibson and Malcolm McDonald.